0: Hopefully you know this is Pro-Life Sunday, and this is that time each year when the church and Lionel Lamb has all along, simply speaks to and addresses the issue of abortion in this country that was legalized in 1973, tens of millions of children that we know about uh, killed in the womb since then. It's a tragedy of biblical proportions. It, It is a tragedy in the lives of all it affects We're doing something a little different this morning. Barb Watkins is going to come up in just a minute and share her own story. Uh, Barb has a story in the field of abortion, knows what that looks like, feels like, and what coming out of that and getting God's sense of forgiveness and peace looks like out of that suffering and pain. Barb also is the former director of the Pregnancy Care Center in Lawrence. Barb has personal experience in this. She's dealt with lots of other gals and families in this same Situation as well. So, Barb brings a great and a personal and a caring perspective to this whole issue that's really helpful. Uh, Barb and Andrew Watkins have been at uh, Line and Lamb, I want to say, about three years. They're a joy and a delight. If you can get to know them at all, you'll be better for it. So, we'll have Barb come up and I'll finish up after Barb for about 10 minutes. Barb, come on up. Thank you.
1: Good morning, everybody. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and this year represents 43 years of legalized abortion. This is a difficult subject to discuss, and I am sensitive to that. I, like many sitting in the pews, remember those feelings of every time the word abortion came up, I would wish the floor would open up and swallow me. It was just, I hated the thought of that word. But today I have the opportunity to share with you my experience with abortion. My prayer for today is that you will leave this building with the hope that Jesus heals and forgives, no matter what the sin, if we come to him in repentance. And Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness leads you toward repentance. I just want to give a little bit of background about myself. Um, I was raised in the church, my parents took me to church every week, but I did not have relationship with Jesus. I went to church, you know, just, I was faithful every week, going to church, memorized scripture, but I did not have a relationship with Jesus. My mother and father were both intact, they were both in the home. Um, I was very rebellious as a teenager, and that's where I'm going to start with sharing my story. Um, It was 1974. Abortion had been legal for one year, and after many weeks of not feeling good, my mom took me to see my doctor, and he ran several tests, and he came in, and he said to my mother, Mrs. Ireland, this is something that nine months or a little procedure can take care of, and my mother said, we want that little procedure. Well, I didn't know what that procedure was, but I was soon to learn learn real quick what that was. It was an abortion. I was put to sleep, and I had a suction abortion. I think I was probably about 11 or 12 weeks pregnant. I I don't really remember. And when I woke up, the nurse was patting my hand saying, Honey, your little problem's been taken care of. And I'm thinking, Oh, that's right. I was pregnant. Now I'm not pregnant anymore. And initially, I was relieved. But that was short-lived. It was just a short period of time before I had so much guilt and shame from... Um, having that abortion, and it was something that I thought about very frequent. If not all the time, it was very frequent. I tried many times to talk to my mom about it, and my mom said, it's in the past, Just let's just leave it there. Well, I didn't want to leave it there, because it was something that I thought about regularly. So um, two years passes, I'm now 17, and I was pregnant again. And I told my mom that I thought I was pregnant, and she goes, Well, I fixed you the first time. What's your solution for this? And I said, Well, I'm going to get married. Well, I was 17, and the guy that I was pregnant by, he was 18. And my mom goes, I don't know if either one of you are ready for marriage, but if that's what you think is best, then that's what we'll do. So I got married, and we had a beautiful daughter. And then two years later, I was pregnant again and had another beautiful daughter. When that daughter was nine months old, I had a friend of mine that said, "Uh, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And I was of the mindset that you couldn't know where you were going to spend eternity until after you died. And she goes, well, you know, the Bible says that you can know if you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And that night she led me into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which was good, but I still had this horrible secret that was hidden deep inside of me that I couldn't talk about. I just, I, I wanted to talk about it, but the shame was so huge. I couldn't talk about it. And I had a friend that was involved in pro-life work and she kept saying, you ought to, You ought to come and share, you know, come and share uh, being a part of this pro-life movement. She didn't know I'd had an abortion. As much as I wanted to, there was no way I could do that, you know. It was just, it wasn't going to happen. And she just kept praying for me and speaking truth into my life. And I, you know, I started to, to start kind of wanting to move in that direction for healing, but it was so painful, I didn't really want to take those steps. So, um, two years later, I'm pregnant again with our third baby, and my appendix had ruptured. And I got very, very sick, and I'd never had a sonogram through any of my other pregnancies. And they did a sonogram on me that night, and when I looked on that sonogram screen, that baby had fingers, toes, arms, legs, legs. And just the panic that hit me of the reality of what abortion had done. I had ended the life of a little baby and just the pain that that caused. And I was pretty hysterical at that point. And, you know, they thought, well, it was because I was scared of the surgery. Well, really, it was because the reality of what that abortion did. I guess up to that point, I had comforted myself with that it was just a blob of tissues or something. I don't know but the reality hit me. And I was worried sick about that baby because um, I developed peritonitis shortly after having um, that, my appendix out. And they thought I was going to die. And I was receiving morphine shots every four hours. So I was freaking out thinking, what's going to happen You know, with this baby? She's receiving that too because I was pregnant with her and the doctor kept telling me if you can carry the baby for seven days after the surgery most likely you'll probably be able to carry that baby to term well I did but I need to back up a little bit before I got out of the hospital the nurse the day I was going to be released from the hospital um, the nurse came in to me and she said do you have a sister and I thought well that was a strange question and I go no and she goes well And I need to clarify, this is not the man sitting here. This was my first husband that I'm talking about. But um, she goes, well, every time your husband comes, he has a woman with him, and she sits outside of the room when he comes in to visit you. Well, little did I know that he was in a relationship with another woman, and shortly after I had gotten home from the hospital, he asked me for a divorce. So... Now, not only did I have the guilt of the abortion, now I was going to be a divorced woman. And I just, just all of the anxiety and the fear and the panic inside of me. And so we, the judge, would not grant our divorce until that baby was six weeks old. And so um, my husband, my ex-husband, had was remarried 37 days after our divorce was final And if that wasn't enough wound, they sent me an invitation to the wedding. Which, you know, I had so much hatred inside of me. I I mean, I was just a bundle of yuck. That's all I can say. I was just a bundle of yuck. I had grown to the point that I was so bitter and angry inside, I I couldn't enjoy anything. And so he had... um, Him and his second wife had a baby shortly after they were married. And one day, I had walked downtown. I was on very limited resources because he would pay $300 a month child support, and it was sent to the SRS um, Child Support Collection Agency, and they would put $93 with that, so I'd get $393 cash and $200 in food stamps. And so I was on very limited resources. And so one day, I'd walk down to the post office, and he was there, and he goes, Barbara, wants want you to come over and meet somebody. I knew who that somebody was, and I know it sounds really ugly, but I'm just being truthful. I knew it was that baby, and that was the last person that I wanted to meet. But, you know, God uses everything to draw us in and show us his love. And I looked into that little girl's eyes, and all the hatred that I had felt for him and for her, it was just like it melted. And I was able to forgive him. And the funny part of that is, I had told him, you know, Daniel, I forgive you for all that's happened. And he laughed at me. And he goes, I haven't done anything that I need forgiven for, which didn't matter because I was free. You know, that's the, the main thing. I was able to let it go and I'd started living life again, I started enjoying life, and a friend of mine, she um, she had this cassette tape that was Dr. Cho, who pastors the world's largest church in Korea, he had come to the U.S. and was talking about prayer, and a woman had went up to him and she goes, Dr. Cho, I want you to pray for me a husband, and he goes, you need to be more specific than that, He goes, God's a God of details. You need to be specific in what kind of a husband you want. He goes, I want you to go home and I want you to write 10 characteristics that you would like to have in a man. And begin to ask God to prepare your heart to receive him as well as his heart to receive you. So she left and a year later he was back in that city and she come up to him and she goes do you remember me and he goes well help me out you know I see a lot of people and so she recounted that story and she goes this is that husband that I prayed for and I just wanted you to meet him well I was thinking you know God's no respecter of persons if he can do it for her he can do it for me so I made a list of 10 characteristics that I wanted in a husband and I prayed, I don't know, it was probably two or three years, something like that, because I was single for almost five years. And which was kind of scary in itself. Like I had said, I was on very limited resources. And um, I just got this conviction oh, that I needed to end the services I was receiving from SRS. I just felt like God was prompting me that, you know. You, you need to let go of that, and trust me. And so I stepped out in faith, and I did that, and it was a scary, scary time because, like I said, the child support went to the collection agency, so it was a full six weeks from the time I call, canceled that before I got my child support checks back in the mail. And I couldn't tell my mom because, you know, sh- she would think, okay, I've seen you do some pretty dumb things, but this tops it. And so um, the day that I got the two checks back, my child support checks back, I was able to pay my rent and all my utilities and buy some of those things that we had been doing without because we didn't have the money. The kids, I had three little girls and I can remember driving and I would tell the girls, well, you better get to praying, we're driving on the Holy Ghost. And (laughs) they, they just thought, I mean, We talk, our middle daughter, she just lives down from us. And we were just talking about this yesterday. And she goes, I thought everybody drove on the Holy Ghost, you know. But we did because that was, we would pray that God would make that gas go as far as it needed to go. And he did. And so, you know, it was a really a time of me really growing and trusting God that he could provide every need that I had. Well, then it was... Now it was 1986, um, a mutual friend of Andrew's and mine uh, had worked, they, Andrew and this guy had worked together in the oil fields in Oklahoma, and when that oil work stopped, he moved back to Greenwood County, which is where I was from, and he asked Andrew to come to church with him one day. And so Frank and I went to the same church, and before we went into church that day, he asked me, he goes, I want you to meet somebody. And I looked at Andrew and, you know, I thought, where did Frank get this guy? He was uh, kind of a scrappy looking oil filled guy. And, I'm, you know, I'm, it sounds like I'm just terribly judgmental. I just, you know, that's what I was thinking. And. Uh, That day in church, and this, this just really astounds me, that that day in church, Andrew went forward and asked Jesus to come into his heart. And I'm thinking, you know, he was preparing this man's heart for me and my heart for him. And I got to meet him when he was his old nature, and then we built a relationship after his new nature of asking Christ into his heart. So later that day... Uh, they came over to use my phone. Frank and his wife didn 't have a phone, so they came over to my house to use my phone and that after After they got off the phone, Andrew goes, "Do you think I could call on you sometime?" Oh my word, I thought I was going to die. I was so scared i 'm like i don 't know and he goes well it 's not like I want a you know serious relationship. I just need a friend. I could handle that because I needed a friend too." Well, nine months later, we're getting married. <laughs> and I, was, I knew three months after I met him, I was crazy about him. But I am so totally in love with that guy now. This year, we're going to celebrate 30 years of marriage. And, <laughs> you know, that's um, a part I've left out that is so key. When I was in all of my rebellion, my cousin sent a Christmas card to our family and it said in there at the bottom, it had a special note, This is for you, Barbara. And it had Joel 225. The Lord will restore to you the years the locusts and the cankerworm have eaten. Well being a fifteen year old girl, I thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) And the beauty of that is I think about, you know, how God brought Andrew to church, I got to see him before he was saved, and then after he was saved, and just how he was preparing our hearts for each other. And that's part of the restoration. Well, in 1992, my mother had a massive heart attack, and 80% of her heart was damaged. And they had had, been doing all different kinds of things to try to see, you know, how she was going to be. But once they realized how damaged her heart was, they told us unless a miracle happened, she was going to die. And I thought, okay, I, I can't let her die without getting this straight with her. And so I went to her room that night. It was just my mom and I. And I said, Mom, you may be going to die, but I have to keep living. And I have to get something straight with you. And she just was a floodgate. She could not quit crying. She knew immediately, without even saying the word, what I was talking about. And she said, the only way I could live with myself was to never allow you to talk about it. And it wasn't that I wanted her to hurt, but I wanted to know that that she knew that was wrong. And she did know. And, you know, as Mike said, I ran the pregnancy center in Lawrence for seven years. And one time, a friend of my parents came over there to visit. And he said, why do you do this? And... I said, well, I don't know if you know it or not, but I did have an abortion, and I feel like, from my experience, you know, of what I went through, I can help others. And he goes, I did know that. He goes, your mother regretted that decision. There was many times that she had called him and told him that, you know, she wished she wouldn't have done that. And I, I honestly don't think she meant harm to come from it. I think she thought it was a logical solution, but the pain that it caused both of us, you know, and that's the part after, after running the pregnancy center for that long, you see that over and over. It's not just the woman that has the abortion. It's the people that counseled her that they thought that was a good choice or that maybe they drove them, whatever the reason it's painful for everybody involved. And so, um, you know, I've talked to my I had that reconciliation with my mother. My dad is still living and I had the conversation, I don't know, it's been a few years ago, I apologized to my dad for living the way that I was living and that got myself in that situation where I was pregnant. And dad's response was, well, everybody makes mistakes. And I said, yes, we do, but that one cost somebody their life. And he goes, well, it really wasn't a baby. And I go, well, if a baby's heart starts beating approximately twenty one days from conception, at what point in your mind does it become a baby and he goes, "Well, I don't know, but that wasn't a baby and I said he goes, "I don't want to talk about this again, and you know I respect him, and I will not bring it back up, but it is my heart's prayer that um, someday he will make have that reconciliation and while I was uh, At the Pregnancy Center, we had a post-abortion Bible study that we went through with women. And there was a quote in there that I could so identify with. It says, guilt says I made a mistake, and shame says I am a mistake. And I spent almost 30 years of my life thinking I was a mistake. That's a long time. And you think about, I'm just one person. And you think about all the other women and the men and the families that have been impacted by abortion, it it's really um, magnifies how far-reaching that this goes. And a neat, another neat part of my story is, it's probably been 15 or 20 years ago, I wrote the doctor that had performed my abortion. And I had told him I wasn't writing him to condemn him, but I was Wanting to share with him the hope that I had found in Jesus Christ. And I didn't really know if I'd hear back from him, but I heard back pretty quickly. And he goes, I don't know if you know it or not, but I grew up in that town. I grew up in a town of 1,100. And so you pretty much knew everybody, and everybody knew you. And so I didn't, he was older than me, but, you know, I thought, well, that was pretty interesting. And in this letter, he had told me that after he left the area, because I had the abortion in Emporia. After he left that area, he was doing abortions in the Kansas City area for a while, and some doctor friends of his had asked him to go jogging, and so he went jogging with them, and they kept inviting him to come to a Bible study, and he goes, you know, that was the last place I wanted to go. The only reason I went, because I wanted to get them off my back. And so he goes, I went to that Bible study. So that just saying, keep inviting people, you know? That one next time might be the time that it really impacts them. And he, at that Bible study, he encountered Jesus Christ. And he said, I continued to do abortions for a while until the Holy Spirit convicted me that I couldn't fulfill my mission on earth as long as I was doing those. And he goes, I will not do another abortion. But I'm not condemning of those that do. And, you know, that's a point I want to bring up today is we all have that privilege of being able to pray. And if you don't feel like you can be involved any other way in the pro-life movement, you can pray. Because it's when those walls come down and the truth is revealed and you it takes sometimes it takes several times of hearing it you know i could accept the fact that god could forgive me but i had a horrible time forgiving myself i just wanted to continually beat myself up with that and it was the intimacy with jesus christ and his unconditional love forgiveness and acceptance of me that allowed me to finally forgive myself so you know that's that's pretty amazing of how God can take something that's such an ugly stain, no matter what the sin is, and He can turn it around and make good to come from it. And that's why I'm here sharing this today. It's I get kind of nervy every time I get up and and tell this, but it's too important to not tell it because there might be somebody that needs to know that, that you know there is hope after that. You can get through that. And Andrew has been. He was the first person I had told about having an abortion. And I thought, before we got married, I thought, i got to get this little dirty secret out, you know, because I don't want to go into marriage having something that's hidden. And I remember telling him, and I can still see the look in his eyes when he looked at me, and he said, I wished I would have been part of your life then because maybe the outcome would have been different. So, you know, it is that... God's unconditional love that draws us. And I just think of how much he has uh, spoke to me through people that have, he's brought into my life, even just for a season, that were there to help me to navigate through a certain area. And so that's what I want to leave each one of you with today is just the thought that, you know, you can have an impact in somebody's life. Be a friend, support them, pray for them, and um, That's pretty much what I have for today. And thank you for your time.
0: (laughs) Meant to have this up while Barb was speaking. Uh, Sin always brings death. You just cannot get away. Jesus said sin brings death, and that's true for all of us. All of us have experienced that one way or another. I want to follow up Barb's story, her life story, and her testimony with another story, another person's life and testimony. Thanks. Uh, If you've got a Bible, this is from Acts 26, verses 9 through 18. And the context here is this is the Apostle Paul's story. And, you know, typically, if, if you say the Apostle Paul to someone, we're thinking of the guy that wrote the letters and he's the key Apostle in the New Testament era. He's the guy we refer to, but that's not where he started. And so in Acts 26, he's with uh, the governor Festus. He's with King Agrippa and Agrippa's sister Bernice. They were grandchildren of Herod the Great. If you remember, one of Herod's uh, last several years of his life He's the king that slaughtered the baby boys around the city of Bethlehem, hoping that he would wipe out the life of the Messiah, Jesus. Listen to Paul's story. This is like Barb's. He's looking back and he's telling you where he had been and then how he got to be the person we know today. So this is his story from Acts 26, verses 9 through 18. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues, tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury Against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, he says, I journeyed to Damascus. This would be in Acts chapter 9. With the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people, that would be the Jewish nation, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's Paul's testimony. That's his life story there before the king and the governor. Now, go back through just very briefly this list of what Paul said was true of him before his conversion. So he says, I was opposing the name of Jesus. If Jesus had an enemy on earth, so to speak, humanly, it was Paul. He said, I locked up those early Christians in prison. If, to make this personal, if someone came and arrested your brother or sister or one of your parents, that's what Paul was doing to the Christian families there in Jerusalem. He said, I cast my vote against them to have them executed. You know, you meet Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul. You meet him at the end of Acts chapter 7. And what's he doing? He's holding the cloaks of the people who are stoning Stephen to death. You can imagine the scene. They're going to be hurling rocks. They take their cloaks off. Paul helps them by holding their cloaks so they can more freely throw rocks and kill Stephen, that's the introduction to Paul. He says, I punished them and I persecuted them. Now, one of the phrases he uses, he said, I had a raging fury against Christians. Now, this image you're looking at here is from the newspaper. I think this was USA Today. This is a few years ago. Raging fury. The setting for this image was the Commonwealth of Virginia. It was in their state house. And this is a pro-abortion protester who was protesting the fact that the Commonwealth might have, they in fact did not end up, putting an additional restriction on abortion. This face would be somewhat like the face of Paul, this raging fury against Jesus and those who followed him. So think about Paul here for just a second. Not, Not as Paul the Apostle, but... Paul that he's describing in his own testimony and story. This is a guy with blood on his hands. This is a guy who's guilty of the murder of Christians in the early church. This isn't Paul the Apostle. This is Saul of Tarsus, and this is my story, he says. A key question for us becomes, how do you get, how did Saul of Tarsus, this guy he's describing, past tense, how did he become Paul the Apostle? What was involved in that transformation? And maybe what cues can we take from that today? And by the way, um, all of us bring some kind of sin, shame, failure, embarrassment to life. We start that way. We add to those as we go along. We all have things that we wish we hadn't done. And so the question for Paul is the same one for us too. Whether we're not Christians and we're seeing Christ for the first time Or as Christians with sin and that sense of shame, things we want to hide, what do we do with that? And if there's hope for Saul of Tarsus, there's probably hope for us. There's also probably hope for others you know that you might say on the surface of things, that person would never become a Christian. But if Paul did, maybe there's a chance for them too. But these are the two things that I want to point out. The first is this, that Paul simply acknowledged his sin. We call this confession in the New Testament. And to confess means to say the same thing about something that God does. So imagine Paul here is confessing his former sins. He got up and he told Festus and Agrippa and Bernice what his life had been like before, just like Barb did. This is my story. This is my past shame. What gives him the ability to stand up there and say, this is who I was. This is what I did boldly. With confidence, no sense of shame or embarrassment. Now, what gave him the ability to do that? He had confessed. He had agreed with God that his actions, his motives, his heart were wrong. When we confess, we're agreeing with God that what I'm doing, what I've done, those areas of darkness or sin or shame, those are wrong. God calls them wrong, and we confess that. First John 1 John 1.9 puts it this way, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guys, you know, if I've just committed a sin and you're a Christian, I really don't want to see you. Because I, I've got my sin and I want to hide. And I want to hold that sin in the darkness. When we confess our sin, we're bringing that sin and shame and sense of guilt, we're bringing it out into the light. Once you've done that, you don't have to hold that sense of shame or guilt anymore. You've brought it out into the light, we're confessing. Sometimes we just confess to the Lord. Lord, I did this, you know it. Others may not even be aware. Other times I've grieved someone else, I would tell them, I'm sorry for what I did and seek restoration, reconciliation, or forgiveness. But when we bring it out into the light, we confess it loses its power to hold us in our past. That's the first thing. We confess with God the truth about our sin. The second thing, that's the publican in the temple, by the way, who's telling God, I'm a sinner. He went home forgiven. The second thing we do is we simply accept the forgiveness and the restoration Jesus wants us to have. Just as Barb experienced, and I trust most of us here have too, Listen to it in the context of verse 18 from Paul's testimony. He says that, Jesus speaking to Paul, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's acknowledged his sin. He's received that forgiveness and grace in Christ. And now that's his story and that can be our story as well. Forgiveness of sin, the ability to stand sanctified by faith in Christ. Isn't it a great feeling if I go to a church or if I go anyplace else? If my conscience is clear, I don't have any nagging doubts. I'm good to go. I can interact with you, or or I can sit peacefully at home by myself, and I'm good to go because I'm forgiven. And no matter how disturbed or distressed I have been in the past, confession and the reception of forgiveness means I can now have healing. I've got peace. I've got joy, and that's the only difference. I've confessed. And I've received that forgiveness. For many people, when you say this, there's a couple of objections, just two that I'll mention this morning. One is, it can't be that easy. And the second is, you don't know how bad my sin is. It can't be that easy. Restoration, uh, forgiveness, my being right with God in the world can't be that easy. And to that point, we really need to understand this. When we're saying that we've confessed and we've received that forgiveness, Forgiveness in that sense, yes, is absolutely easy to receive. All we're doing is opening our hands and saying thank you. The difficulty of that forgiveness was the cost, the infinite cost to the Son of God that he bore for us in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. Infinitely expensive, infinitely difficult to procure the forgiveness, but absolutely easy on our part because all we do is receive it. It can't be that easy. On our part, it is. Not on Christ, but on our part. The second one, you don't know how bad my sin is. You know, especially if we have sins from the past, if we've kept those in the dark for a long time, especially we have sort of adjusted our life around our sin and shame and guilt. We don't have peace and we sort of try to manage that. Uh, We don't have to live that way. And one of the things Paul says later when he writes to his protege Timothy he tells Timothy something about his own conversion as a point that's meant to encourage anybody else like us or others we might talk to. So Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.16. He says, I received mercy for this reason. Why did God pour out His grace and forgiveness on me specifically? That in me as the foremost, Paul says, I am the foremost sinner. I am the first of the worst that sinners don't get any worse than I am. That in me as the foremost sinner, the worst of the worst, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul's point is this. If God will forgive me, He'll forgive anyone. Paul forgave me so other people could have confidence God will forgive them as well. So there's no sin, there's no shame, there's no embarrassment you and I carry today that God isn't willing to forgive. We confess and we accept that forgiveness. So I hope on Pro-Life Sunday, I hope you resolve with me just on a couple different things. The first is this, to choose life in repentance and confession and embracing forgiveness. You know, for some of us, to become a Christian, it's to embrace that for the first time, isn't it? I just acknowledge, Lord, you're God and I'm not. You're holy and I'm sinful. And I receive that forgiveness Jesus offers me. But guys, as Christians, we go through the same thing over and over again. All of us sin, James says, in many ways. And we do the same thing. And that's the difference between us carrying a sense of burden and shame and guilt or walking in the fruits of the Spirit, love and peace and joy. It's the same thing for us today. And the second is that with the Apostle Paul, we would speak to others of the things that bring life. And again, think of this. Can you imagine being a Christian? You see this in the story in Acts. When Paul's converted and he comes back to Jerusalem and he says, hey guys, I'm one of you. Do they believe him? No way. In fact, immediately following his conversion, God tells his prophet, his man in Damascus, Ananias, hey, go to this guy named Saul of Tarsus. He's in the street named Straight and you're going to go and tell him what I'm going to do with him. And Ananias is telling God how it is. And he says, well, Lord, do you know who this guy is? And do you know what he's done? Just to this purpose that when we look at the lives of others, if I look at a Muslim neighbor or an ISIL member or an abortionist or somebody that I know is deep in sin, and I look at them inhumanly, I say, I have no hope they'll ever change. Think of the Apostle Paul. Blood on his hands. A murderer. A murderer. An opponent to God and God turns his world upside down and he becomes the key spokesman for the church. So don't hold back on praying for, on inviting others, on sharing your testimony with them because God is in the business of saving sinners. Paul said he was the foremost. Let's close in prayer on this verse from Acts 26:18. Lord, would you use us as you use Paul to open eyes to help others turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they, Lord, would receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in your Son. And, Father, for any of us here this morning, would you simply give the grace adequate and necessary for us to turn from our sins, to confess our sins to you today, and to receive that cleansing, healing, peace-giving, joy-filling forgiveness you offer us again. In Christ. Amen.